Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. My next guest could write an opus on what it feels like to lead and live in change. I first heard Drew Wilkinson's story on a Powered by the People podcast at Microsoft and instantly found myself drawn in to learn more about his story. Most intriguingly, the path that led a modern day poet to go from the stage life as a lead singer of a hardcore punk band to one of the world's preeminent technology companies leading corporate activism and communities of passion for sustainability. If you look up Drew Wilkinson, you will find a quote that fits his change story and reads almost like a lyric from his days as the front man of his band, Run With the Hunted. We don't give up easily. No doesn't intimidate us. Those are the words of a change maker. Those are the words of a punk rock veteran. And those are the words of an activist, working to leave the place better than he found it. It was an honor to record in person, capturing Drew's incredible story and listening to the music of his band put out into this world. It speaks to the inner songwriter in me and the quiet rebel in all of us. Enjoy the listen. So we're, uh, we are in the Pacific Northwest in Western Washington in the Puget Sound area. It's January, so it's typical. It's about 45 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe five to 10 degrees Celsius, overcast and lightly raining and just drizzling. And we're standing inside of a rainforest. There's ferns and trees and logs and moss and bark everywhere like every single surface is covered in a green living thing there's moss on every tree limb big old trees we're standing on top of a tree that fell over which is underneath another giant tree that just fell over about a week ago and we're at a cabin in the woods that a dear friend of mine owns and uh my dog is running around at our feet being a cattle dog and there's four goats nearby and he's <laughs> occasionally herding them and it smells like christmas outside and it's damp and wet, but just peaceful, I think. And to me, this is where everything makes sense. You look at the way humans have organized our societies and everything, and it's like, increasingly, it feels like it just doesn't make sense. It's living at odds with the harmony and the balance that you find naturally everywhere in a place like this, you know? It's on full display here. So it feels really grounding to be here and to see this because, you know, it's, it's the way things were before, <laughs> before we changed it. And hopefully the way it'll be long after we're gone. I've only done one other podcast before. And it was kind of like telling my life story, but how I ended up doing this, the stuff at Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I still do some creative things, but it turns out it's way harder to start a band in your 30s. I think my very first band was at 15. 15. And it was formed for the high school talent show. Okay. It's called Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was like, I had just gotten my first guitar when I was like 14. Learned how to play a couple of power chords, which is just the root to be able to play really simple stuff, which was perfect because I already liked punk music. And that's kind of like the appeal, right? It's like very simple, very approachable. You only need to learn three chords and bam, you can write punk songs. So like I got a guitar. My childhood best friend Jason got a bass. Our friend Nick got a drum set and, you know, just go over to his house after school and just practice cover songs for this high school talent show. So that was my first band, technically. But then shortly after that, we all continued to play together. And some first punk band came out of that when I was like 16. And then I was in bands nonstop until 30. 
yeah, so was in a bunch. But the one that actually went places and toured and like really did stuff and became more than just a local band no one ever heard of was for the final eight years of that. Yeah. And we, we'll get to that kind of touring and all of that stuff. But I'm curious when you were, when you picked up the guitar and you put, you know, three chords and, and the rest is kind of history, as they say, what was, the, what were the songs you were trying to play at the time? Oh, like Blink-182, Nirvana, uh, just really like Ramones, yeah. like simple, straightforward. Well, Nirvana is arguably less straightforward and simple than Blink-182, but that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And then when you got together with your bandmates, were they all similar sort of taste in music? Were they all trying to play the same stuff? Did you guys have disparate taste? Could you definitely agree on the sound you were trying to make? Uh, more the latter. Like yeah. we, like Jason and I knew each other since middle school. He found punk first. Okay. I remember actually. His uh, his aunt lived in Berkeley, and she ended up dating somebody from this pretty well known like '80s and '90s Berkeley punk band called the Mr. T Experience. Anyways, she dated him, and so Jason would go visit his. We lived in Phoenix, Arizona. He would go visit his aunt in the Bay every summer and like you know, for a week or two. And he came back with like a Green Day shirt and like all these CDs and was like, yeah, punk, you know? And so I think we must've been like 13 or 14. So that kind of planted the seed. And then we all, you know, 14, I think is freshman year, right? So you start, we started really getting into music. Like music just became like a really big deal. Like listening to music, like this is the, this is the era where you first started being able to burn your own CDs. Yes, so for the first time you could like, make whatever you wanted and listen to that instead of, you know, you could do that on a tape, obviously, but like for our generation, I guess it was like CDs. So we all started getting into punk then. And so by the time we had that first experience of like, let's just play a bunch of cover songs for a battle of the bands. Then it was like, okay, now we just want to keep going, but we want to like try writing our own stuff too. So at that point, yeah, I think we were all pretty much aligned on the sound. And then there's something really nice about starting a band when you're that young, like, whatever comes out is like a pure expression in a way that's different from later on when you've been in bands or had those experiences or maybe have even developed more of your own musical identity. At 16, you're still just like a giant sponge, just soaking stuff in and then combine that with like learning how to play an instrument. You're not good at it yet. So like you're probably not a good songwriter, but there's something in that cocktail of like the first time you ever did it that makes it really pure. Like it's just a pretty raw expression of what's coming out of you. And so our first band was a really political punk band. And we were like 16, 17. It was like as just after 9-11. So all of our political consciousnesses were sparked by all of the events, you know, both what happened, but then obviously the government's reaction to that, like the Patriot Act and the war in Iraq. And like, so we were developing our, our own political consciousness and then putting a soundtrack to it, trying to. And so like the first songs are like essays. It's really a shame. I wish I, I, I could find a way to play it for you eventually, but like I had it on an iPod and I carried this iPod around until like a couple of years ago and it finally got stolen out of my car, but I would love to play it for you. Cause mm -hmm. like, it's just 16 year olds playing sloppy, fast punk and just like screaming about, you know, like being anti-war <laughs> and right. like, so that was kind of how it, how it started, I guess. It was like both an outlet for this, these ideas and these things that we were experiencing and, and learning how to play instruments. And so I started playing local shows. And So I'd love to get back to that. You talked about the, the purity of the expression, of like when you were 16 yeah. and, and that sponge-like, right? You're just, you're taking in everything. You're forming your own kind of perspective and identity. I'm curious, like, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll unpack all this, but mm -hmm. do you have moments of that ever now? The pure expression? Yeah. Yeah, I do. This is like a therapy session now. <laughs> Tell me about your pure expression. <laughs> uh, well, so I don't play in a band anymore. I, I would love to, I, I'm so open to it. It's just been really hard. Like I've had little fits and starts, but like it's really hard to get something consistent going. So I do, I do play music occasionally by myself or like my partner and I play together and so some, but not really regularly. So I picked up like photography 
Um, I read and draw, uh, and um, I do a lot of like outdoor hobbies and stuff. So there are moments doing any of those things, and especially doing stuff outdoors, where I feel like it's still a kind of pure expression. It's different though, because I'm not like 16 and writing a song and trying to articulate how I feel. I guess in this later phase of my life, that pure expression feels more like learning how to just be really present in that moment. And that's like a different kind of pure expression. It's not like a song I could share with someone else, but it's like a feeling that I get when I'm finally just like truly in the moment and feeling very present. And then more lately, literally just in the last couple of months, I've picked up ping pong. It's starting to feel like pure expression now because, you know, a ball comes flying at you and it's, like microsecond decision-making that you're not even aware of that your body, your brain is making for you. It's like explosive motion. It's a, also a kind of pure expression. It's like a bodily pure expression. Like, am I going to chop it? Is it going to be a forehand topspin? Like, so in that way, I guess I feel that, I feel that too. And then sometimes, honestly, I feel it at work because I get this platform to talk about what I think is the thing that most of us should be talking about a lot, which is, you know, climate change and like what to do about it. And so I do feel that moment of pure expression then too. And in a funny way, that's the closest version of it to being 16 and having a guitar. Because in some ways, it's not that different. I'm on a different kind of stage. I'm delivering the message a lot so more soft, quietly, <laughs> nicely, not screaming it, although sometimes I would like to. Um, so I feel it at work too. And it's in those moments where I get to like, I mean, it's the same thing as being on stage, to me at least, it feels the same. And in some ways, the work that you're doing now in the sustainability community, <clears throat> it's a little bit like those essays coming to life. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Right? Am I wrong in that? No, no, you're right. And like people who know me well and work closely with me, like it's no, it's not a secret that like I go, I'm long in the, how do they say it? Long in the tooth. I talk a lot. I could go on at length. And so just like those first essays that could have just been half of that length, just like, da, 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 like trying to cram the words in. I still, yeah, I am nothing if not consistent, I guess. But I think the consistency is, <clears throat> is something not to be sort of disregarded, right? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a common thread to what you're talking about, which is you had a very, you had a mes message of conviction then. You have a message of conviction now. Um, if, I mean, certainly your world is expanded, right? You're, you're, platforms have expanded but in some ways tap into the 16 year old yeah to make change happen yeah it's funny like there's been uh more than one occasion my mom you know my best friend and like biggest fan literally was at every show and like actually really liked the music and like wasn't just there to be supportive it was like this is awesome you know like yeah. she really liked it too and there's been moments in, in, on my journey and in my career where she's gotten to directly participate with me. Like maybe I'm taking a call in the same room as her or like I've shown her, you know, videos or like I did a, I did a presentation for a corporate sustainability group a couple of weeks ago, but anyone could join. And so my mom dialed in. And so we had a good laugh about it on this. Like, I'm like, oh, my mom's on chat. And we're like, hi, hi Drew's mom. Like, so it's it's really cool um, that she has she has been part of that journey too and has like been so supportive of it all along the way, yeah. and she would say the same thing that it's it's there's some consistency there. Yeah, I think um, I think back to a story my my father-in-law would go see his uh, his grandson who's who's uh, still in a band and at the time was in a very very much a punk band, nice. and his grandfather would go like stand you know front front row right and so cool. and we'd be like hey you need to use the earplugs and you're like no no, no. I'm like already yeah halfway there. I, i'm already like totally there <laughs> it's not coming back um and to see that level of support is yeah. something that's pretty pretty special um for sure so so you did so in high school you did the battle of the bands thing yeah and then through college did you guys continue different no no just like different cocktail of friends yeah. and like um, was in like maybe four to five bands from 16 to like 20 or 21. Mm -hmm. And then I think it might've been the last year of college that I formed the band that ended up being the one that actually did stuff, you know, toured the U S a dozen times, went to Europe twice, put out four or five records was, you know, for eight years. 
and it was still my childhood best friend on bass. That part never changed. Yeah. Uh, and then some other friends that we made. And uh, one cool thing about it is that it was just the five of us the entire time. A lot of changes, like not everyone could go on every tour, so we had like fill-ins and stuff. But that's unusual for a lot of bands, but especially for punk bands, because yeah. like most punk bands don't stick around for eight years. Right. It's typically a very short, short thing. But to have the same five people was was really cool too. When you made that transition to like, oh, this feels like some sort of, and I'm going to use the word commercial success, but I don't know if that's the right way you describe it. Definitely but like, not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but like a shift. When it becomes self-sustaining or yeah. close to it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And people know who you are outside of your hometown. Okay. Can you leave the place? Our first, our first ever recording is an EP called Find Your Way Out. Okay. And, it, and that's literally like, I mean, back in my day, I don't know how it is anymore. This is pre-Spotify and streaming and stuff, but like, and you could start a local band and like play a bunch of shows and get a, get a following or whatever, but could you book yourself a show or keep in mind, this is at a very DIY level. It's just like a small community of word of mouth. There's no booking agents or managers. Like there's no one you could pay to do this for you, at least then. So it's like, can you leave the play? Can you go play somewhere else? Can you get people to come? Will people know who you are? And then, yeah, can you go on tour? Like, can you take these incremental steps where eventually it becomes cl close to self-sufficient? It's not making money, hardly ever. Right. Hopefully it's not losing much, but it's always just, in a, yeah, that's how I would define it, I guess, success in, in this world, because it's not commercial. I mean, you're yeah. playing to like 50 kids a night. Right. You know, nobody's making money. The booking agent's not, you're not, but that's also what makes it pure expression. Right. It's not driven by that. Okay. It's pure, like, we just, we just want this. We just yeah. love this, we, whatever. People have their reasons, but... It's cool. It's one of the few parts of life uh, that I've experienced, at least, that hasn't been completely commercialized or like turned into something that you can buy or sell, although I guess you could argue that it has in its own ways. It's, uh, it's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Mm -hmm. So like highest of highs. You're making money. You're selling stuff. People are showing up to the shows. Maybe people know the words and are singing along. Maybe people are like moshing and like having a good time and like you've got a place to sleep that night. <laughs> Someone's like, hey, I, I just brought you dinner to the show because I thought you'd be hungry. You know, uh, the, the van's not breaking down. I'm not losing my voice. Those are the high highs. You're like, this is awesome. Like, this is exactly why I do it. The lowest of lows. <laughs> Nobody has come to a show for three days. The van broke. We had to cancel three shows and then drive 50 hours straight to make up for it. I lost my voice, I'm really sick, I'm sleeping on a couch covered in cat piss, uh, everything is broken, nothing is working, like, oh, there's a, there's a blizzard and we almost crashed the van and died, like, that's the lowest of the low. Uh, and it's, it's very much both, there's not a lot of in-between. But, but what I have also noticed all these years talking to people about going on tours, like, people have a very romanticized idea of what it's like. And don't get me wrong, it is romantic, it is like, is one of, it, it's beautiful and amazing, and I don't want to take anything away from that, but the majority of the experience is five gross, stinky people stuffed in a tiny van for like 10 hours a day. Like you're mostly just seeing the road from a van window. <laughs> and then you get to the place you're gonna play, you unload, you play, you pack up, you leave. If you're lucky, you have the night or like maybe some time around that. So like even though you cover a lot of ground, Unless you're touring, you know, with a lot of days off or like at a luxury level that a DIY punk band never does, you're just grinding, yeah. you know, getting from place to place. But not to complain. It's just, um, it's actually kind of boring a lot. Mm -hmm. You're just stuck in the van and everyone's stinky and it, it's, it's also disgusting, at least touring with the guys I toured with. Like, yeah. I mean, just everyone's getting so sweaty every night and those shirts don't dry out. So like... No, so it's so gross, but you like, you roll it up in the crack of the window and then you drive down the highway with these stinky shirt capes just flapping. <laughs> and you want to know another pro tip, how to not get pulled over on tour, you put a church sticker on the back of your van. I mean, we had the sketchiest looking van, right? It's this big old nasty rust bucket. We put like blacked out limo window tint on it because it has thousands of dollars worth of musical gear. It's overnight all over the country um and it's rusty it's it's crappy like it's just a target especially you know we're from the southwest like 
there's border patrol checkpoints everywhere. And like a big van is a target for getting pulled over for all kinds of reasons, but not when you have a church sticker on the back. So, and that was the, so every night somebody had to sleep in the van, almost without exception for protection. Yeah. Cash is in there, the gear is in there, but it was the thing that you wanted because it was like having your own apartment for the night. Oh. Everyone, I mean, you know, everybody else gets to sleep in a house, but yeah. as I said, sometimes what you're sleeping on is cat piss. Yeah. I slept in like the nastiest of places. You know, it used to be like everything. I went like three, four days a week. It was my friend group, my social life, like it was all these things. But I think pretty much since it started, all the way back to the late 70s, early 80s, when this first wave of kind of punk bands, I think it just has always, there's always been another generation that keeps it going. Yeah. It grows, it changes, it evolves, but like, I'm pretty sure it's still happening. That's and great. I think it always will be. Just like the way that these kind of technological waves of revolution change the way people live and work, you know, like I was, it changes the way you tour. It changes the yeah. way you do music. Like streaming, you know, relatively new. Like. I was touring when it was on the cusp of like the very first smartphones coming out. Yeah. And so what we would do is like MapQuest was definitely like the thing. the thing. So we would print out like hundreds of pages of step-by-step -step MapQuest and put them in a binder. To get to all the places. Yeah, to, for the tour. And like the generation before us had like map maps yeah. and pay phones. Yeah. And like, you know, so like it changes, it morphs. Now, obviously you can just, it's so easy, but like it still keeps going. And it still stays primitive and like ex uh, accessible and, and like small to a, to a group of people. And the coolest part about touring was like, you see that it happens in like the most unlikely places. Like obviously like big cities or places that have a history of a scene or whatever. But sometimes you just get invited to play in the most like, what, where? In yeah. what? Yeah. And there's like a, the, all it takes is really like 20 kids to be stoked and you have like a little scene, like the seed of one. Mm -hmm. Enough to bring a band through, you know? Yeah. And I would rather play a show where 20 people are really excited for it and doing it versus 100 bored people who like yeah. don't care or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we toured for some bigger bigger bands. Just bands that are, were still part of our like sub. Mm -hmm. So like we're, we're a punk band, but we're specifically a hardcore band, which is like an even another branch on the punk family tree. And so there were bands that were, you know, at the next level from us, but still in the scheme of things, a very underground DIY, you know, but they could just draw like a couple hundred kids a night right. and we could get like 50. Mm -hmm. So, but the cool, like the cool thing was there was this band that's from here, from the Seattle area. Actually my entire connection to Seattle and everything that has come from that is connected to this band. Uh, they were called Trial. They were active in the in the 90s when I was too young to be going to those shows and didn't live here and didn't know about them anyways. So they broke up, I think, right around the millennium. And then a couple of years later, I got really into them somehow. Like my friend group found them and it was like exactly the style of like political hardcore that we were like really getting into and, and emulating. I was like, oh, they're an awesome band. And then they decided to do a reunion in 2005. And so we all flew up here. We were like... 18, 19, 20, and saw this reunion show. And that was the first time I ever came to Seattle. And it blew my mind coming from Arizona. Like, what? And got to see this band play. And then, you know, a couple years later, I started that band that I was mentioning that I was in, when I was in college. A couple years into that, started booking tours, played a show in Seattle. One of the guitar players for Trial came to the show. I think I wrote him. I was like, hey, we're coming up to play. We love Trial. It'd be great to, you know, and he came. And we became friends, and then eventually he had a record label. He started releasing our records. And so we got more and more deeply inter intertwined with the band. And so they, they started getting more active again when they realized after this reunion, like, oh, people want to see us. People who were too young to see us the first time, you know, like us. So we did a couple of tours with them. We went to Europe with them. And then, like, the ultimate dream. Because keep in mind, when I was, like, 17, this is, like, one of my favorite bands. And now, like, we're friends, and we're going on tour with them. Uh, the second European tour we did went all the way into the Balkans. So it was like Russia, Ukraine, uh, Bulgaria, Serbia, Macedonia. And their guitar player, EJ, couldn't make the tour because of his job at Microsoft. So he wasn't on that tour. So I played guitar for some of those shows. So not only did I get to tour with my like, you know, teenage favorite hardcore band, but I got to actually play guitar for them in Russia, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just a mind-blowing experience for me. You know, I was like, whatever, in my early 20s, mid-20s. My whole life was set up for touring at that point. I had, like, figured out how to hustle enough to, to keep it going. It was, it was awesome. Oh, yeah, every single thing I did was with the same 55-liter Osprey backpack that I still have. It was, like, my go-to bag on tour. And then back when I first I got it, started getting the backpacking, too. So on the road six months a year and just hustled, hustling between and eventually figured out how to kind of stabilize that. So then the band ended when I was, like, 30. And at that point, I had traveled to all these places, and I was like, I want to live in Seattle. And, and I could see myself there. Lots of the other places were like nice to visit, but it was like, I can't live there. So I just moved up here and was like, give it a shot. And all of the, I, you know, I already had like a community built in from the punk scene. We had great shows in Seattle. We knew a ton of people through Tim and our, the record label and like the scene. So it was a good place to, to try getting a fresh start. And the first time I had ever lived somewhere outside of where I grew up in Arizona. And I was here for about six months. I had two, not, two part-time nonprofit jobs. I was working for the organization uh, Sea Shepherd. Mm -hmm. And then I was working for another local nonprofit that did salmon habitat restoration and had a cheap room in a punk house, really disgusting house, true to form. Uh, and then somewhere in that first six months, EJ was like, hey, there's a, there's a paralegal job on my team. I think you should apply for it. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, no, what? Have you seen? Have you seen this resume? Um, but, you know, he's like, explained it, and I was like, oh, I think I could actually I could do that. And, and I had been here for less than a year and was seeing how expensive it was and was like, wow, I, maybe I should try that. And that's how it happened. Yeah, and then I applied for the job, and, and I got it and got into Microsoft, and that was almost seven years ago now, six and a half. I was an associate paralegal, so like a junior paralegal. Uh, I worked on the litigation team. So, of course, an army of lawyers that all have their specialty, patent, employment law, uh, competition law. And then each team has paralegals who do a lot of the, the work that, you know, that, that, that needs to be done to support the cases. Like doc, document discovery. What? Yeah, it's some research, but it's, it's different in a, in a tech company like Microsoft compared to a traditional law firm. When did you get into some of the sustainability stuff within Microsoft. Like you, you sought that out yourself, yes? Like yes. That, that, that was a passion that you had. Again, another sort of, you know, pure expression to go back to that. Sure. But you hadn't, ha had you tapped into that yet from a, from a sustainability standpoint? Yeah, for sure. So maybe it helps to go back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please. I would, I would describe myself as an environmentalist for as long as I can remember. Because at the same time that that kind of first political consciousness kind of arose, you know, 14, 9-11, you're like trying to make sense of like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. You know, at the same time, like, and even younger, growing up in the 90s, like, I feel like in some ways it's the first time when the true global scale of these environmental catastrophes because of humans were really coming into focus. And so I kind of like grew up seeing that, like more frequent forest fires, even pop culture stuff like Fern Gully, this oh, like yeah. cartoon and like Captain Planet. Yep. Like obviously people knew that we were destroying the environment yeah. for a long time before that. But right. if I don't think people really understood the full massive scale of that until somewhere in there. So anyways, like those seeds were in there. And then as my political consciousness developed, I got into things like vegetarianism and veganism and learned about, you know, the way that we produce food in the industrial food system and the way that we treat not only the planet, but, you know, all of these animals and stuff. And so wrapped up in all of that, it, it was an environmental consciousness, too, and like an understanding that, like, these things are all actually deeply interconnected. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had the, like, language for it then. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was always in there. I mean, some of the songs we wrote, oh, there's the goats, uh, were, you know, about climate and environmental stuff. And then I worked at environmental nonprofits in the band years. And so I developed oh, a little more okay. of an understanding of, of that stuff. And so that, that like, and then, God, I mean, you don't really have to, like, look very far to see, at least in the last couple of years, people are talking about climate change all the time because right. it's impossible to ignore now. And so when I came to Microsoft, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was just thinking like, 
why am I at Microsoft? And like, right. sh should I do, should I be here? Like that entire first year as a paralegal didn't do any sustainability stuff, was just trying to figure out like, what have I gotten myself into? Like this place is insane. Yeah, so the, the nonprofit that I worked at right before Microsoft, that was, I was literally outside in the rain like this, yeah. grubbing out Blackberry and just cleaning up riparian habitat for, for fish. And it was five people. The whole nonprofit was five people. And then I started working at the corporate headquarters of Microsoft. 50,000 people, 100 buildings. You know, it's, it's hard for people who didn't work there before COVID to really understand what it's, I mean, a private shuttle fleet that drives you around buildings, like, it's like giant university, 50, you know what I mean? So like, and even just walking through one building, it felt like a beehive. There's just like people everywhere. So for the first year, I was just trying to understand what I had gotten myself into and figure out if I could prove that I deserved to stay there. Because I definitely was like, it was, and it wasn't just starting some regular job. It was like, you're working with lawyers. <laughs> These people are trained to detect bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they're really good at that. And so I was just like, just trying to figure it out. So at the beginning, there was no sustainability consciousness. But also moving through the built environment, you're in the cafeterias, you're in the little kitchenettes, you're walking through the halls. What do you see? overflowing trash cans in every single place with things that were used one time for like two minutes. And so of course I like saw that and was like really pissed about it. And like, God, come on people, just bring a thermos. <laughs> like, not that hard. Uh, so seeing that stuff and then eventually it started kind of like dawning on me like, this is a trillion dollar company. <laughs> they can do things at a scale that like no nonprofit will ever I mean, they can move markets, you know, like, oh, and there's really smart people here and a lot of money and a lot of technology and like, I mean, all of the things, right? And it was like, those would be useful tools to fight climate change. <laughs> so at some point, I think the light bulb went off and was like, how do we use those? And then it was like, okay, well, I'm just some random paralegal, don't work in sustainability, not, certainly not an expert in, in any of this stuff, not some CVP or whatever, like, how do I get my hands on those tools? How do I, you know, and so then question after question after question, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. But there, in the beginning, no, there was no, like, it's not what I came there for. There was no, um, no, no thought of a community. Like that just, it just happened that way as I kept asking those questions and going further down the rabbit hole. In the beginning, it was two of us. And it wasn't a community yet, it was just two people. And then after that, we started a monthly meetup. And so then it was like just word of mouth on the Redmond campus, like once a month. What, what can we do about this? Let's figure it out together. Yeah. So then there was five, and then there was 10. And then it stayed like that for a while, probably six months to a year, where it's just like just 10 people in a room just trying to figure it out. And like, those are some of the first like slideshow presentations I ever gave, you know, it's like in a safe environment, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then, uh, and this is another really funny story, I guess, like somebody from this program called Worldwide Communities saw what we were doing. So when it was still just very small and like not trying to be anything and was like, hey, I work on this communities program, communities of practice, to your point. There's not a sustainability community, you know, that would be really cool. So this is like five years ago, I guess. And we were like, he's like, do you want to take what you're doing and do it, you know, on a bigger platform through this kind of program, get a little support? And we were like, we don't know what we're doing, dude. Like, <laughs> there's just 10 of us in a room yeah. trying to, you know. He's like, yeah, well, no one else does either. So, so Holly and I, you know, the one we started this together, talked about it. And we're like, okay, I mean, it's not your day job. Do you have time? Can you do it? Should we try? What's it, you know, what are the pros? What are the cons? Like, we talked it out and we're like, yeah, let's do it. And so I think that was, it wasn't just that moment. But then shortly after plugging into that larger structure, of an established communities program, you know, we started having our first calls. And we had this, uh, we had this volunteer at day one, his name was David Burroughs, just this really cool British guy. And he had like the coolest voice. And so he was like the first MC on the first couple of calls. And I, I remember like sitting on it, listening and like, hey, there's like, you know, there's like 30 people here. What, what's going on? That's cool. Got this British guy, it sounds all official. All right, maybe this is a thing. <laughs> So I don't remember like an exact moment, but 
somewhere after that was like one of the kind of like posts along the way. But still, it was just like such a little experiment and just like a little infant, like not sure what it was and what it wasn't. And like, it wasn't until after, and so that was in two, 2018. Okay. So then two years later, uh, in, in 2020, Microsoft came out with these big sustainability commitments and that changed everything because sustainability finally went from this kind of like, ah, it's just like a nice to have, like you gotta check that box. We're doing stuff, not to, not to discredit any of the amazing work people were doing in those early years, all of it was critical. But still, it was like a team of five, you know, pretty small, certainly not something that like every business group is talking about or like there's no carbon tax on, you know, like all of this stuff now. And so that changed everything. And, and I, I guess part of the story that people don't know is that part of the reason that that happened, that the company made those commitments, was because of the community applying pressure inside the company to, I mean, everyone all the way up to Satya, Satya like to the CEO, that we had, a, we had a rite of passage in the community that you would get on the mic at a live town hall and you would ask a climate question to the CEO. We all took a turn. Yeah. So we were tightening the screws from the inside going, hey, Microsoft, <laughs> You're not doing enough, you know, don't take it personally. Nobody's doing enough, but like you also have a tremendous opportunity and, and we would argue responsibility. Yeah. And so 2020, after, from that point on, the community's just been turbocharged, adding thousands of people, 3,000 people joined last year. It's finally becoming something that lots of people are thinking about, talking about, interested in, passionate about, like it's really, it's, it's, hitting, it's, um, it's hitting a different level now. And so it was completely volunteer. And look, like the, the community program still exists and still relies on a small army of hundreds of passionate, dedicated volunteers, you know? And it's such an amazing thing to see people stepping up and doing something above and beyond anything that's required of them. And everyone has their reasons or whatever. And mine was like trying to, you know, first get one of the largest companies on the planet to, to do more for, for what I think is the issue of our lifetimes. But then of course, the other part is to just like use all of those resources to do it at the largest scale as fast as possible because that is what's required. So I got to work on the broader program now called Connected Communities, formerly Worldwide Communities. And so for the past three years, I've worked as a community, I'm literally called a community program manager. So the sustainability community leading it is still one of my responsibilities, but it is not my full-time job. No, I don't think it would ever be a full-time job. Um, in a way, that would kind of go against the point of a community. Because a huge part of it is like growing new leaders, creating more opportunities for more people. And so if somebody was able to kind of formalize that as like, it's my job, you know, other people can't. So I kind of like that it's this decentralized grassroots thing. And we've relied on hundreds i don't want to like try to take all the credit like it's a community like i play a part in it you know i play my part in it but like hundreds of volunteers over the years that have given like two hours here or like two years there and everyone's chipping in and like that's what actually makes it makes makes it successful well and that's where in some ways i feel like it's almost a um homage back to the punk totally <laughs> right like it's not that different if you think about punk and punk rock and punk music, like going back to what we were saying before about the community sustains itself, yeah. right? And they don't sell out. They don't, <laughs> they don't make that sort of like, okay, let's scale to the point of commercialization yeah. and lose who we are because it's passion that drives us, not necessarily profits. And I think your point is very valid in the sense of like, how do you chase something that is a passion, continue to make that based on purpose, um, and, I, and, and one thing I'm always curious about is, because I struggle with this too, in the sense of if somebody said to you, hey, do your passion and I will pay you full time for it, do you lose some of the glow? Like that's, I worry about yeah. that myself, right? People come to me and they say the same yeah, yeah. thing. Hey, if this podcast, somebody came out of somewhere and said, I want to buy all the rights to this and I want to give you all this funding and I want you to do this yeah. full time, what would you say? And I mean, let's be clear, that's not happened. I don't think it's gonna happen, but I don't know if I'd say yes. Because yeah, there's, there's some magic in this, right? <laughs> like we're standing in a forest. <laughs> we are. It's raining, it's beautiful, it's so beautiful. And I don't have any bosses that I have to report to <laughs> in, this, in this medium. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I'd trade that for anything right now. 
But you know what I mean. I totally do. Because yeah. that's like, you know, some, some bands at our level in that kind of un, you know, mostly underground DIY scene, some of those bands left that and went to the next thing. And like, you know, one could argue sold out or like, com- like went beyond the level where it's just self-sustaining. And like, peop- you know, people do what they do. People have their reasons. But for, for those who were my friends and I was able to like watch what happened as they went through that, you know, some got pretty big, some didn't really. On a long enough timeline, none of them are really doing it for a living. Like, yeah. it is a very hard way to make a living at any level. Uh, like, they all had to kind of reconcile with that, that like, now it's my job. Yeah. And it, it I, I mean, who knows, everybody's different, but if you, if you ask me, yeah, of course it changes the calculation mm-hmm. um, to, to monetize or, or tie something that you're really deeply passionate about to how you take care of yourself in life. It changes it, but there's ways. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's that balance between passion and profession. And, you know, I think, I think we walk it in some ways, but um, where do you think, uh, let's fast forward a couple years okay. here. In the two realms, we're gonna stay in both punk. So in punk, five years, and then in sustainability, five years. Okay. Give me your oracle. Oh, I mean, I'm not as uh, plugged into the punk world anymore. I feel punk in my heart every day, okay. but I'm not like go, going to shows and like don't know all, all the bands. So I'm like a boring old person now. Where will punk be in five years? I think pretty much exactly where it has been for a while. Like in the early 90s, bands like Green Day were the first bands to come, and Nirvana, to come out of what was up until that point, mostly a really pretty insulated DIY music scene. There were bands that emerged earlier and got bigger, you know, like even bands like Blondie and stuff started in the punk scene, like U2, but like something shifted like with like early 90s, like Nirvana, Green Day, all of that stuff. And so those bands got like enormous. And so from that point on, punk was both this kind of underground word of mouth music scene and one of some of the biggest bands in the world were that. It was both. And it's been that way ever since. So my Oracle prediction of punk in five years is exactly that. Because that's the cycle that's been playing out since then. Is like, there are these bands that come from that or still kind of fly that flag and like are pretty big. Paramore, you could argue, somewhere on the tree, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And then like we were talking about earlier, like there will always be those 20 kids in a small town that are like, they just get their instruments and they want to scream about stuff. Yeah. Both will hopefully always keep going, it, it is my prediction. Yes. What was your other one? Five years what? Five years uh, sustainability. Sustainability of the planet, the whole, the big thing, the whole shebang? Let's, let's start a little more micro. Okay. Let's start like local. policy, local policy, national policy, and then let's go planetary. So it's 2023, January. So five years from now is 2028. Well, what will be interesting by then is that if the calculations are, or the projections are true, we will have exhausted the planetary carbon budget, which means humanity will have put so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that it is almost physically impossible to stop the global warming uh, at 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Once the global carbon budget is, is, is exhausted, it is almost impossible. So that will be interesting in five years to see like what's changed, you know, cause that does, that is, a tr- that is like as best as you can put a number on stuff like this, which is <laughs> really hard. That's a point of no return, you know? So in five years that'll have happened. Local policy, well, we're, we're in Issaquah, Washington right now. This place is actually very climate progressive. They're already thinking about resiliency and all kinds of really good stuff. Actually, the people whose house we're at are deeply involved in local politics with the city, so they, they would be better to speak about it than I will. Uh, Washington State, where we live, uh, is actually very climate forward. Our, uh, our governor, Jay Inslee, is like one of the biggest kind of climate people at that level of government. Um, and we've, I think even just this month, some new emissions caps came into place, and so they're trying to do stuff. Nationally, man, I don't know. It depends, like, God, who can predict politics in five years yeah. in this country of all places? I just don't know. Like, it just depends on who has more power. <laughs> Same as always, right? But, like, there, it's, it, it's getting so loud now. Like, the, sign- the feedback signals of what's happening from 
I mean, like as we speak, California is like underwater. You know, there's all these other disasters happening. Like the Colorado River might run dry in the next 10 years, which is like, what? You know, heat waves, like these, it's becoming harder and harder and harder to ignore because it's starting to affect so many people. So you would think that that would lead to more action. And you could argue that it is. The Inflation Reduction Act that passed this past summer, biggest climate bill of all time, lots of opinions on whether it was anywhere near enough, but either way it happened. But I also see a, a very likely future where things mostly don't change because the status quo is profitable and because the people who are in those positions of decision-making and power have a vested interest in continuing this as long as humanly possible, which also isn't really that much longer. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I could see it going either way. Um, if past is prologue, I have a little bit more of a gloomy view of the future, if I'm being honest. But that's also why I'm throwing all of my energy at this problem because that's not the future I want to live in. And if I could do something about it, then that seems worth trying. Yeah, I, um, I think I mentioned to you this morning, I was talking with uh, Scott Kelly. Oh my God, what a cool perspective to, to literally have been in space. Yeah. What a perspective. And one of the questions I asked him was how, how that changed him. And he spoke directly to what you're talking about. He can't see the planet the same. He can't, uh, he can't pretend this is not a climate crisis. He cannot, you know, one of the things he, get, he gets really frustrated about is that it's not a matter of, <clears throat> well, actually, he said the things that get in the way of climate science is political science. Um, just like he said, the things that get in the way of rocket science yeah, are political science. Um, and so it was really good to have a discussion with him about how, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't take for granted rain. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't take for granted that he lives in Colorado and sees the beauty. But if we could only put, as we were discussing this morning, if we could only put every politician on a spaceship and have them go up and take a look and then come back down and, and pretend that they're going to, support or not support, depending on how you look at it. Um, so who knows? Who knows what will happen? But I mean, I think it is, it, is pretty, it is pretty unique to be able to talk to an astronaut in the morning and a, and a climate activist <laughs> punk, what a cool life. punk rocker in the afternoon <laughs> while standing on a log in a beautiful right. rainy day in Issaquah. What a, cool, what a cool future you've worked hard to put yourself in isn't that what makes it all worth trying yeah if we knew how it was going to end it'd be so boring completely yeah completely i love the randomness of it all and in my story like the irony that like a punk rocker ends up at corporate america <laughs> it's so funny it's like i have thought so many times trying so many times i've thought 16 year old me would be so pissed at me right now but i've also thought 16 year old me would be so proud of me right now look we look the fact the truth is we need people inside the machine outside the machine above it below it we need people everywhere you can be in relation to the machine trying to change it because that machine is grinding up the earth into dust at our own peril so yeah you know in previous parts of my life i raged against the machine <laughs> I still rage against the machine a lot. <laughs> uh, in this era of my life, I'm like, okay, I'll try to do it from the inside and see what that, see, what are the limits? You know, that's something I ask myself every day. It's like, what are the limits? How far, how, not only how far can these kinds of institutions, these power structures, how far can they be pushed, but how far am I willing to push it? What am I, what, I mean, th these are questions that I think every great like activist in history has, has had to grapple with. Like, how far am I willing to go? What am I will, willing to risk? What am I willing to sacrifice? You know, because that's, that's where the rubber really meets the road. People can agitate for change without ever really risking anything personally. And it's pretty easy to do that kind of stuff at like at, at your, well, I don't want to say at your job because lots of people get retaliated against, but like doing what I'm doing in the place I'm doing it. Like by and large, I've actually been very impressed with Microsoft's leadership. Um, I don't agree with a lot of the things they, they do, but their open-mindedness to taking employee feedback, somewhere on the spectrum, sometimes straight criticism. Like, this is not, this is, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, like, always at least willing to hear that and, and respond to it in a way that feels respectful. I've not seen any evidence of retaliation or anything. Yeah. And the, the cool part is I'm starting to get, like, signal yeah. on an in, with increasing frequency and, like, volume that, like, I'm on the right path and I'm, I need to keep doing it at ever larger scales.
And so I'm starting to turn my attention increasingly outside of Microsoft to do it. Because it's like, cool, figured out how to do it here. Does it need me anymore? Great, keep going, don't stop. Now let me go help 1,000 other places do it too. Isn't that the truest sign of success, right? So. That you're, you're ready to do it again somewhere else. somewhere else. Times 10, times 100, yeah, yeah. I, I think so, 100%. That goes back to the, can we go to another town and play <laughs> and will they show up? Right? It's back to the name of your first EP was what? Find Your Way Out. That's so funny. I never thought of that. Well, thank you, Drew. Yeah, my pleasure. This, great. this was fun to come do it out in the yeah. rain. I hope you get that atmosphere. Oh, I think it... I Drew Wilkinson is a co-founder and leader of the Employee Sustainability Community, the SCC, and Microsoft. Since its creation by two employees in 2018, it has become one of the largest and most influential employee sustainability communities in the private sector. And at the time of this podcast recording, it included more than 9,000 members and 35 local chapters. It's also a central part of Microsoft's ambition to become a carbon negative, water positive, and zero waste company by 2030. This global group of Microsoft employees is committed to protecting Earth's natural resources, creating positive environmental change, and ensuring Microsoft is operating with the most sustainable practices possible. The SCC is a water cooler and bulletin board of the 21st century hybrid workplace. Members gather here to connect with each other and sustainability professionals, increasing their understanding of the climate crisis and critically find resources they need to do something about it. The community acts as a connective tissue that cuts across traditional organizational boundaries and silos, ensuring that information and innovation flow freely throughout the entire company. Above all, it is fun, welcoming, and a warm place where employees can show up as their authentic selves and find unique ways they can contribute. Shortly after recording this podcast, Drew left Microsoft after seven years to find a bigger stage to perform on. He's taken the blueprint of successful community organizing and employee engagement work from his time at the tech giant and helping apply it to hundreds of other companies and their employees to grow as many employee sustainability communities as possible. His mission remains unchanged, to make sustainability part of everyone's job. Learn more about Drew and the community in the show notes. Thanks again, Drew, for sharing your story.